This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, the top story is not strictly a municipal affair, but healthcare affects everyone. And I just quickly want to go around the table and get our panelists' take on the measures we just heard about in Bob's news. And after that, we will also have to talk about a crisis of affordability here in Toronto and the looming deadline for registering to run for municipal offices. And there's also interesting data on the languages spoken here in Toronto. And now it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO, David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, and councillor Brad Bradford, Ward 19, Beaches East York. Hi, everyone. Hi, Hi how are you? Hey, folks. Hey, so let us begin with David. And you just heard some of the measures that are supposedly going to stabilize healthcare. Uh, we've got, uh, we've, we've got, uh, more surgeries in private facilities. Not clear to me if it's facilities that already exist or they're going to get new ones because we heard rumors about that. And more importantly, um, moving people who are in the hospital who should be in long-term care, moving them out, maybe against their will to nursing homes that they have not chosen. David, what do you think of that? Well, I haven't had a chance like everyone else to... Uh to understand what the details are, and the devil is always in the details. But I think there are certain things the government has to do in the interim. We were distorted before, but certainly pandemic world changed everything and distorted our normal way of doing things, even when the normal way of doing things needed fixing anyhow. So that's the first point I would make. The second point is that when they're doing it, when you do things in the interim, there's a real danger that you're going to do them for the long term. And so I think we have to keep our eyes narrowed on the government, that it does not move away from the five fundamental principles of healthcare and Medicare in this country. And I think we need to really worry about that because it's going to be easier as they, if they try and privatize things that need not be privatized, I think it'll cause us great harm. Brad Bradford, uh, have you been hearing uh, from your constituents about this? I mean, the city has 10 nursing homes, but I suspect they are the ones people want to get into, not the ones that they don't want to get into. And uh, we know that this hurt people during the pandemic. But on the other hand, you know, forever, this has been the biggest bottleneck with our hospitals and emergencies. Yeah, you know, I think you're absolutely right on that, Libby. It, it comes up at the doors. I was out canvassing as recent as yesterday uh, and hearing some concerns about the healthcare system. I think when you talk to a lot of folks, you know, they're less focused on whether it's a municipal, provincial, or federal issue. They just want to talk to you about the issues. And healthcare has never been more acute or top of mind uh, than it has over the past couple of years. So, you know, as, as David was saying, there have been problems with the healthcare system you know, through successive governments, decades and decades of challenges that have been laid to bear in a particularly acute way uh, over the course of the pandemic and as we go forward. So 
I think anyone that you know tries to suggest that everything is fine and that we don't need to consider changes, um, you know, is not necessarily being honest. But the way that we do it, the details, what that looks like, is going to be really important. Uh, I think the idea of, frankly, you know, making sure that hospitals are for triaging and addressing the most acute, serious, uh, you know, injuries or illness makes a lot of sense. I think the idea of ensuring that we have more capacity in long-term care uh, where where those sort of issues and those sorts of patients uh, can be better uh, served. I think that makes sense, but how you do it matters, right? And so the idea of, you know, moving someone out of their community, the idea of uprooting their, their lives in a time where it's particularly challenging, that has to be done uh, in a sensitive and thoughtful way. So we'll have to see what that ends up looking like, but change is needed. Uh, all governments, and I think across the country, all the different provinces are wrestling with this. We need probably a better working relationship between the provinces and the federal government uh, to fund the health care, which is a universal bedrock of Canadian society. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Lauren, I mean, it's more more of a concern for us older people than... Uh... <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, I think it's a concern for everyone. If, if there are long surgical wait times, there are long ER wait times. And I'm glad to kind of see the government addressing this, even if it took a global pandemic, to get to the point where they're looking at triaging people at hospitals and sorting them more appropriately. Like, uh, full disclosure, I have friends and family in this field. And I, from my understanding, a lot of people present to the emergency departments with, you know, my kid has an earache or, or simply you've heard of like the holiday dump. People drop, like dump their elderly residents there just because they don't have anything else to do with them. And, and it's, it's so sad and really kind of a waste of resources. And so I think it's a good idea to be, be triaging there and, and kind of allocating resources more appropriately. But I do think there are some really interesting points in this and in, in this, um, in this plan. We'd obviously need more doctors and nurses everywhere. But this this whole thing about this emergency department peer-to-peer program interests me. So they're going to have experienced emergency physicians, you know, in cities assisting rural doctors, like, remotely. So I, I think that's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm not sure if that is, you know, the best solution, but it's definitely a creative solution. Okay. Now, I, I'm going to get into this a little more uh, when we talk to stakeholders. But here is the thing we don't even know about innovative solutions. So people end up in emergency possibly because they can't get in to see their family doctor and they are told to go to emergency. So in a newsletter that I got from UHN, they talked about their virtual emergency. And I thought, wow, this sounds really interesting. It's not exactly, it's not for if you have a heart attack or a stroke, but, um, so uh, even before we knew about this announcement, I said, I'm going to do that for our weekend show, Zoomer Weekend Review. Like, what is this? And it turns out this has been in effect in Toronto since December 2020. And I sort of figure if I don't know about it, no one knows about it. I certainly didn't know about and, that. And no. it's uh, it's to triage people. You can get a same day virtual appointment. And the best thing is... One of the reasons you want to go to emergency is that if you need a scan or a blood test or whatever, they'll get it for you. Well, they will get it for you, and it's not for everything, but nobody knows it's there. I hope a lot more people know now listening to this. That's a great That's a great solution, too. Okay, let us move along, and it is uh, tomorrow is the deadline for registering for uh, a municipal 
race, and we have way fewer candidates. Uh, David, you and I were talking about this last week. So as of uh, almost a week ago, 197 candidates were registered, 17 for mayor, 92 for city council, 88 for school trustee, and back in 2018, 501. So that's not a good thing. And I think there are about 12 councillors that will be elected by acclamation with no challenger. It's not a healthy sign. There's no, there's no doubt about that. And Brad will have some, uh, I think, clearer, more cogent thoughts than I might offer at this stage because I have not been involved with it as directly. But it needs to be said that the job got tougher. Uh, being a, a council member of council just got tougher in the last number of years, especially when they had to take on such a workload, which pretty well doubled what they had originally. So, so at the same time, if I get into another issue, the, the province is considering weakening council by weakening the, 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 the power and influence and opportunities that councillors have with respect to public policy. So it seems to me that there, we are asking people to come forward for a more weakened position at harder work. Uh, and I'm not sure, I, 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 I think that's, that it's, we shouldn't be surprised that people are not coming forward. Brad? Well, some, some good points there. It's definitely a, a different experience this time than it was for me my first time running in 2018. But um, as of today, I'm, I'm kind of scrolling through the list here in Toronto. It looks like everybody will have uh, an opponent. So nobody is, is going to be, I don't know, maybe one. One might be acclaimed. Uh, and we have until 2 o'clock tomorrow uh, to figure that out. But, you know, more broadly speaking, I think David hit on some points. It the job uh, is a demanding one. I think if you're looking at running for council, it means you probably follow it closely enough to see the breadth and extent of the work. And when you're delivering local services, and that's everything from getting your, your garbage picked up to the rec programs, to the parks, transit, affordable housing, small businesses, active transportation, all that stuff. When you're trying to deliver that in a federal riding with 110 to 120,000 people, um, you know, it, it, it can be a lot. I, I embrace the work. I love the work. I love the challenge. There is no level of government where I think there's an opportunity to create a greater impact in people's day-to-day lives. Um, but it definitely, you know, it's definitely challenging. I think the other side of this is over the past couple of years, even since 2018, we've seen the intensity of polarization in our politics uh, really increase. There are a lot of hot takes, social media uh, certainly rewards the hot take view. And the reality is we're wrestling with a lot of complicated and nuanced policy discussions, challenges uh, that don't have a simple fix. And yet everybody is looking for a really simple fix, snap your fingers and, and just make it better. That's how we feel. That's what we want. But of course, as we said, the devil is always in the details. And, and sometimes these things don't happen overnight. So when you've got folks out there who are, you know, dissatisfied, um, you know, disengaged, unhappy, uh, it doesn't create a great opportunity for positive engagement or helpful discourse. It creates more polarization, the doubling down of hard and fast views, and, and a bit of a disconnect from uh, perhaps a positive way of moving forward. I think we're seeing that more people will get in as the deadline looms in the next sort of you know 26 hours here, uh, but definitely a lot less engagement than 2018. And you know we might be cruising for uh, you know a historic low in voter turnout on October 24th. And that would be pretty darn low. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we've been talking about this all week, but Stephen Del Duca is throwing his hat in the ring as mayor 
of Vaughn, and he's just the latest failed provincial politician, including John Tory, uh, to do that. Is is this a good thing, David? That, it really does depend on the individual we're talking about. So I would I don't have any sort of global thought that, that everybody would fit into. Um, it was not usual, though, historically in the lot, up until maybe this generation. But uh, mayors came up through the ranks, as it were, school board, council, and they, they, didn't, they weren't coming the other way. Um, yeah. That that has been a little more including yourself the case. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Uh, I wasn't on the school board, I was on the council. By the way, we called them aldermen at that time. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, but at any rate, I, I, I think that— And it's, you became a cabinet minister it, it, federally. It, it, right. But so I, I, I've had—and I've, had, uh, I've worked at the provincial level on a number of occasions and doing a number of things. Let me say right off the top, uh, out of all three levels of government, make no mistake about it, your local councillor works harder, more constantly— uh, than any other of the other two levels. Yeah, everybody works hard, but their their constant need to deal with individual problems of their constituents is unbelievably hard. And and that's why when I think about the service that's offered and the rewards that are now offered, uh, and the in my judgment disrespect uh, that comes even from the current provincial government, uh, uh, it, it really concerns me. I I, I might say. Uh, that we we for, for for people running for mayor, we'll we'll always get pretty good talent looking for that because that still carries with it a prestige. It still can be called your worship, and that works with a lot of people. <laughs> okay, um, moving right along here, uh, Lauren, you pointed this out. This was a story on Blog To, a big story for you. Housing affordability uh, is has achieved the worst deterioration in 41 years. And that's, I guess, both the cost of buying a home and the cost of renting, which is going sky high. Yeah, it's it's uh, ridiculous. So, so the way this is a National Bank of Canada report on housing affordability that we covered. And the way they calculate affordability is something called mortgage as a percentage Sorry, let me look at the, uh, the exact term. MPPI, mortgage payment as a percentage of income. So yeah. how much an, a representative home costs um, versus what a average person makes in a city. Um, yeah, so it's about 63% now, 63.9% Canada-wide is how much of one's income they are putting towards mortgage. And that's not even in Toronto. It's higher in Toronto. And I mean, I think by the CMHC standards, affordability, the mark of affordability is 30%. So we're way beyond double that. And we have been for a while, but uh, it, it was just really interesting to see this saying this is, this is the worst it's been since 1982, this increase. And in Toronto specifically, it's the worst it's been since 1981. So, <laughs> I mean, it's not a great time to be <laughs> buying a home in Toronto or even owning a home because, you know, if you've got a mortgage still, it's going up. Are, yeah. Salaries <laughs> aren't going up, but interest rates are. So, Oh, salaries are going up. <laughs> Actually, uh, and they will be going up more, and that's just going to uh, contribute to all the inflation. Brad, what's your take on that? There's nothing I hear more about um, at the doors than the affordability crisis, uh, inflation, and, and particularly housing. Uh, we talked about the housing crisis in the city of Toronto. And, you know, on one hand, there's so much demand to be in the city, a global center for diversity, investment, uh, con to commerce, entrepreneurship, uh, and really great services. Folks want to be here. That's a good thing. Not every city has that challenge. Um, but in terms of housing, both 
you know, home ownership and our rental market, which is extremely tight, where we have less than 1% rental vacancy, that puts a huge strain on the cost of living. Uh, as Lauren was saying, you know, we're not we're not looking at the the era of thirty percent of your household income going towards housing. Oh, it's been a while since it's been that. Yeah, frankly, in, in many instances, it's north of fifty. And if you didn't get into the real estate market, you know, a decade ago, you're going to have a real hard time getting in there today. So, you know, as we look ahead to the next term, you know, if I'm back on city council, this is an issue I'm seized with. Uh, you know, one of the the younger folks, generational voices on on city council. You think about your friends, you think about folks who are a few years younger, uh, who are desperately trying to, you know, not even achieve home ownership, but just find a good, solid place to rent in the city. They get pushed further and further out. So we have a lot of work to do locally uh, when it comes to uh, some of the zoning, when it comes to more housing options in more neighborhoods. You've probably heard conversations about missing middle garden suites, all the different ways that we're adding gentle density across the big city of Toronto. We have to do more of that. We have to do it faster. Uh, and we have to provide more options for people to live in the city. There just is no other way because if we can't address affordability in the city of Toronto, our future success and the sustainability of that success will be compromised. And I completely agree with that. And I just wanted to point out also in this report, um, they calculate how much you would need to make an annual household income to afford a normal home in Toronto. At this point, you need an annual household income of $265,000. So salaries, even if they are going up a bit, I mean, it's a lot, especially if you're a single parent or a single income earner, but even for two people, you need a combined salary. That's a lot. That doesn't include the down payment. So that like it's, you need the bank of mom and dad and a very, do. very, yeah. very serious bank of mom and dad. Yep. I'm looking at the clock because of the, all the healthcare changes. We're basically out of time. So I'm going to go around. David, uh, what are you looking at for the next week? Are you going to have a closer look at people who put their hats in the ring? I, I will take a look at that. I'm actually doing some work on uh, on Ontario Place in its future. Uh, and on a housing policy. So I'm going to spend Ooh. all my, I'm going up north, by the way, and I'll, on a little bit of a retreat, but I'll have lots of time to think and, uh, and I'll be writing, uh, in those two areas. Okay. Well, uh, we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Brad, what about you? I'm at the doors every day talking to the residents of Beaches East York, uh, listing their concerns and how we can work together to solve them. God and bless you. More from us on on housing uh, housing policy here in Toronto in the coming week as well. So maybe we can chat chat about that next week. And Lauren, yeah, I'm also going to be watching to see who's throwing their hat in the ring for the municipal election. I, I thought that David Ryder had a great piece in the Star yesterday, kind of explaining, as we always talk about, some of the reasons why people aren't running. And and I didn't really consider this factor of death threats, hate but, mail, all this oh, vitriol yeah. online. So I'm going to be exploring that a little more this afternoon, see if I can write a piece about that. Because yeah, that, that's a, I mean, that's a, probably a huge factor. I'm, I'm sure, yeah, uh, David and Brad could speak to it more at, at another date or whatever, but people are getting really, really mean out there and it must be difficult oh. to run for office at this time. Because oh yeah, especially for women. We've mm-hmm. got to hold it there, all of these things that we will revisit. Thank you all. David Crombie, Lauren O'Neill, and Brad Bradford. Thank you, Thanks, Thanks Liv. See you soon. Uh, we're taking a break. When we come back, something fun. The CNE opens tomorrow for the first time since 2019. And Block T.O.'s resident food expert, well, Danger Pay, she tasted all those wacky foods. We're going to hear from her momentarily. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The CNE starts tomorrow, first time since 2019. And as always, there's a big focus on the wild and wacky foods that are showcased there. And BlogTO's new resident food expert, Renee Soon, has returned from this very tough assignment after tasting them all. And she is here to share her yuck to yum scale. Hi, Renee. Thanks for dropping by. Hi, Libby. It's great to be here. And I can say one thing is, I've survived, kind of. <laughs> how's, how's your tummy today? Oh, geez. I don't know if it's too early to share this uh, with any of your listeners, but if anything, if you are to do something like this, I would space it out over the whole whole uh, exhibition or maybe just concentrate on a couple items and not try to do the 18 that I've done because I will tell you, um, my body is not liking me hold, right now. <laughs> hold it right there. I, I don't think we need any more details. Now, <laughs> The one item that we heard the most about, Mm -hmm. uh, or two items, were the mustard and ketchup ice cream. And I'm just going to play a clip of your initial reaction to it. So now we are at the moment of truth. The ketchup and mustard ice cream, you can get them separately as just mustard or ketchup. Or I asked for the twist because how do you get the full experience without just doing it all, right? So let's go for it. It's either served salty or sweet. Sweet is sprinkles. Uh, salty, I guess, would be with some garnishing salt. I didn't really see anybody going for that. So I just went with the, uh, the dealer's selection. The mustard does definitely have a slight hint of yellow mustard flavor. The ketchup one is kind of like, it is hinted with uh, ketchup, kind of like when you have ketchup chips, you know, at the bottom of a bag and and you have a little bit of that leftover uh, crumbs. Um, Not really savory, uh, just allowing that sort of the essence of ketchup and mustard, um, maybe what you have left on your lips at the end of eating something where you might have had those condiments, and then uh, it's just traces that you kind of can taste. Uh, so it's not offensive, uh, surprisingly, uh, but it uh, might not be something that I would want a whole cone of, but it is actually okay. Uh, not offensive. There's a ringing endorsement. Okay, Renee, on the yum to yuck scale, um, how did mustard and ketchup ice cream do? I have to say, because I think all of us having seen pictures of uh, the cones on social media, on any of the previews of the CNE, have really kind of, I think, made opinions about it before even trying it. It looks terrible. It looks like it's going to be something that you would have so much regret over. But when I tasted it, because it was so mild, uh, it really had more of a, if you want to call it a, a neutral vanilla cone flavor, and then just those traces of the condiments. So in terms of eating it, uh, like I had mentioned, I guess this is the first time hearing those clips, uh, is that uh, it was fine. But I don't really think I would want to dedicate more than three bites to it. It really wasn't absolutely delicious, but because of the yum to yuck, yuck, sorry, yum to yuck or the yuck to yum scale, it wasn't completely disgusting. Uh, but, <laughs> so hence the uh, yumish sort of uh, rating. Okay. Um, so what was the best thing you had? Uh, hands down, uh, there were two things. One of them was an item called quaffles, and that was brought to us by Fua Fua, which is known more in, I guess, the restaurant um 
in the restaurant setting for making Japanese souffle pancakes. And they're absolutely delightful and delicious. In this case, they've just taken croissants and griddled it into a waffle shape and then topped it the same way that they would do with their embellished uh, pancakes. And so that was really lovely. Um, is that sweet or savory? It's not too sweet. Uh, and it is, it isn't quite savory. It does have dessert toppings, but it's not, uh, a sugar bomb that you will feel like you're have the onset of diabetes afterwards. It's actually quite delightful um, and very sophisticated looking. And then the other item, which was savory, was the soulful tater tots uh, from Get Your Own uh, Tots. I believe that was the food truck's name. And that was great because it was real food. Uh, and honestly, when you're just trying everything that's all novelty, having real food makes a big difference. <laughs> okay, uh, the yuck. What what was the worst thing? Oh gosh. Um <laughs> is it a race to the bottom here? Uh I feel really terrible because I do know that these operators have put very a lot of time, effort, energy uh, to developing these products. Uh a lot of them I would say they're really great for pictures. Uh <laughs> but one of the items that I really could not get behind was the edible slime. Uh it's as you <laughs> would imagine it just doesn't sound Tasty. Appealing, uh, <laughs> but it, it, and also I think the part of the novelty is because it is this iridescent sort of goopy, gluey, um, liquefied candy, you're supposed to play with it. And when you're playing with it, like it's Play-Doh, um, it already has that sort of, Renee, of don't play with your food. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but I feel like this is a great, would be a great hit for the kids because they can literally play with the food and then consume it. My only concern would be then I'm assuming if they're playing with it so much, they'll probably wear more of it than they'll consume. So that <laughs> well, was one that of my, that might be a good thing. Exactly. Um, <laughs> for, uh, 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 I think what just judging by the name, it sounds like something that might be uh, more of a, a dare or a fun thing than, um, a meal. Yep. And, and I guess that's one thing is that it wasn't completely terrible. It was just liquefied sugar. The item that I, I guess I feel bad to say item because there were items, but one of the other items that, uh, I did try, uh, was the spicy pickle lemonade, which was, was okay for one sip if you like to drink pickle juice. Um, <laughs> But I can't imagine having a whole whole cup or glass of it. And it's relative on, a, on, I guess, from the same vendor is this mac and cheese lemonade, which they didn't actually have for us to try yesterday. Um, and I have to say, I am quite thankful that was the case. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, lemonade stained with cheese powder and with macaroni on the bottom of the glass that you are supposed to enjoy, like those who enjoy tapioca pearls in boba tea. Um, I can't imagine... Soggy, being soggy delicious. macaroni at the at exactly. the bottom of your. Uh, anything else you want to tell about? Uh, tell us about. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of besides the shock factor foods like we were talking about the mustard and and ketchup ice creams. There are other kind of fun Instagrammable uh, items. Some of them actually pretty okay to eat, uh, such as the squid ink stained hot dog. It looks like a squid. A uh, very a long corn dog that is a, has a dark batter that's coated in sugar, like a lot of the... Uh, Why would you put sugar on squid? I'm, <laughs> I'm just asking. So it's not really the squid itself. So it is a hot dog in the in the center. A hot so it's a dog? Corn, it's a corn dog with a hot dog in the center. Why they called it a squid hot dog, or corn dog, sorry, is that they've cut off the cut up the ends of the hot dog so it resembles the tentacles of a squid. Oh. And then they've stained the corn 
meal batter uh, with squid ink, so it's dark. Um, they've done it in a more Korean sort of uh, coated hot dog style, which uh, if you've ever had those delicious concoctions, they do recommend sprinkling with a little bit of sugar just because there's that contrast of salty well, and I was, sweet. I was going to say that I actually quite like those, but I've never uh, understood the sugar part. So maybe I need to try that because I like those Korean mm-hmm. corn dogs, but I have them, you know, really like you can put some mustard and yep. some mayo and that is it. <laughs> And so I, think, I should try the sugar. I would say because they've already covered it in sugar, you really don't have a choice of whether or not well, you want oh, to Well, the one it. there, but exactly. I mean, I have the regular ones. Yes, I would say so. It's it's uh, it's slightly different. It gives it, it's kind of like salted caramel. Uh-huh. If you've ever had uh, salted caramel, just caramel by itself. And then when you have the little touch of salt, uh, it really does cut through that richness. And it's it's nice. So I don't know if I would recommend putting sugar in everything. But for a uh, different taste sensation, of, in that instance, it actually does does add more than it takes away. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for that. So we now have an idea of what to try and mm-hmm. maybe what not to try. <laughs> At the CNE, Renee Soon, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. We're taking another break. And when we come back, a very serious story and the measures announced, the healthcare measures announced this morning. And uh, people, I want to hear what you think, especially uh, anything to do with people in long-term care who may now be moved to nursing homes that they haven't really wanted to be in. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we will be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been talking about the measures just introduced by the Ford Conservatives to stabilize health care. And my take is there's not enough to placate or status, satisfy stakeholders. But uh, we are also not as deep into privatization as some had feared. Now, one of the measures involves what we call alternate level of care what others call bed blockers. And of course, that's a moniker which shows how little respect uh, some people have for our elders. And it's about clearing them out of hospitals by sending them to nursing homes they may not want to go to. Now, we saw this as an emergency measure at the height of the pandemic, and it caused a lot of pain for some people. And I also heard a contradictory explanation from the minister about whether people would actually be forced to move to places they don't want. So, uh, first of all, I want to hear from you in the audience, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We will be talking to a number of stakeholders. We begin with Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Hi, Donna. Hi, Libby. Good to join you. Uh, good to talk to you. So, uh, firstly, your reaction. What do you think? Um, you know, I think certainly one of our takeaways from today's announcement is that there's a recognition that we need to take a system approach to this, and long-term care is a, a part of the system. So, in the announcement, we had the Minister of Long-Term Care together with the Minister of Health, uh, which is reassuring that that they're working well together. And we, we do support the government's continued efforts to bring 
the health system together at such a critical time. There are some good nuggets in there, the enhanced uh, emergency response, the 911 response to help keep people out of hospital, uh, some investments in uh, new behavioral supports for our long-term care homes, some minor capital investments. But overall, um, it, you know, we appreciate that there are people who are in hospital today who no longer need the level of hospital care. Our challenge is that the average age of an admission from hospital into long-term care is 81. And those individuals have very complex care needs. So they may not need to be in a hospital anymore, but do we have the right medical and care uh, clinical supports available in our long-term care homes to ensure a successful admission into long-term care? And health human resources is key. And if this is going to work, the conversations with family members for those individuals who are in hospital and for the individuals themselves are going to be key. But we also have to assure that any admission is a safe admission and that we have the right clinical supports either in the home or have uh, are able to work with local local partners and have local solutions to make sure that, that those individuals will get their care, the care that they need. That's, that's a real challenge. So one thing I was not clear about, so on the one hand we heard uh, they will take up what was an emergency measure and they will... Uh, clear out those hospital beds, and this has been a problem for decades, as we know, by sending people to nursing homes that they don't want. But then when the minister was asked for clarification, he said, well, it's a conversation and and the new law will just allow them to, what he called, continue the conversation, which means that if the family says no, no doesn't mean no. So what's your take? Can they actually force people or dispatch people to go where they don't want to go? Or is it, I don't know, another conversation? Our sense is it's another conversation at this point. We haven't seen the regulation yet, and as always, the the devil's in the detail. Uh, We we certainly know that, uh, to your point, when, when this was introduced in, in earlier ways, it, it, it really was not well received uh, and, and really wasn't used at all. Uh, we, we are at a, a very critical juncture right now, and, and we're certainly mindful that all of us are going to have to work together to help free up hospital spaces so that those people who, who for the past number of years have not been able to go to hospital to get their surgeries and, uh, and uh, to treat their illnesses. So how do we how do we focus on more local solutions? Uh, certainly our members are, we, we prefer to make sure that the solutions are local solutions and that we are able to keep individuals in their local communities. That has to be um, the top of mind. At, at the, We're talking about human beings. Uh, we're talking about residents who are already living in, in long-term care. We're talking about their family members and we're talking about individuals who are in those spaces in hospital and their families as well. So uh, we're, we really do believe it's going to take all of us working together. We have 38,000 people on wait list for long-term care today. This, uh, it, you know, The minister uh, noted there are about 2,400 spaces. These were isolation spaces that we'd set aside uh, to support admissions during during the worst of COVID. Certainly, we know vaccines have worked. Um, however, if we don't have staff to support those the, the people moving in, that's, that's going to be a real challenge for us. Uh, and we also know that uh, we need to build out home care. So if people are, 38,000 people are waiting and we have, they're, they're looking to move 2,000 people from hospital, then our beds are filled. 
And that's well, a one-time solution. Well, it, and exactly that. So they seem to be putting long-term care and hospital care together here, but uh, there wasn't much on home care. There wasn't anything that I heard on home care. Uh, let's just take a call from Andrea in Brampton. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. You're very welcome. Um, my husband um, was in a nursing home and died there. I'm sorry pre, to hear that. Pre-COVID. I have a couple of comments about that. If they do that, number one, if they're moved to another host nursing home, it's very rare that they get a chance to move back into the family's neighborhood. They just, they're not first on the list to move, so they don't very often get moved. Number two, um, nursing homes pre-COVID relied on the families for a lot of other care, such as feeding. Yeah. Um, sometimes even noticing when there was something medically wrong that they missed because they were so short-staffed. So that's number two. I think there's going to be more deaths and illnesses if they put this in. Andrea, thank you very much for your call. I, that's, I, I mean, that's the key. I mean, on the one hand, you have family wanting to see their loved ones, which people need for their emotional well-being, but family caregivers are crucial. Donna, do you worry that this will disrupt that? Well, as I, I said, the, the conversations, families have to be part of the solution for this. And, and to Andrea's point, we know the role of the essential family caregivers has has become even more paramount uh, over the last few years. It's really shone a light on on the the role that family caregivers play in our long term care homes. So again, that 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 puts more pressure on the frontline staff, who which is already really precarious, especially in our rural communities, uh, where we're seeing emergency department closures. Those are the communities where there's no primary care, there's no home care, and if, and we don't have staff for our long term care homes. So. In those communities, especially, we really need family support in our long-term care homes. So we've, we've got to take a solutions uh, approach in this. We have to see, the fam- see families and the individuals who are moving in as partners in this, and it needs to be a collaborative approach. We can't, we can't, we shouldn't <laughs> just force people in, uh, especially when we're, we're, we're talking about individuals who, who are likely at least 81 with multiple medical issues on multiple medications. Um, that they, we have to make sure we don't lose the humanity in this. And uh, do you worry that they will, or are you comfortable and satisfied that, that they won't? I'm, I, you know, again, I have to see what the regulation says. They, we haven't seen that yet. Uh, we're hopeful that certainly in our discussions with both ministers, uh, the, the tone is, is one that is about those conversations. Uh, we are really uh, being quite uh, assertive about the need for communication and support and partnership in this. Uh, we, we do understand the hospital side of this and, they, and their desire to um, have uh, people moved from, from the hospital. Because we know too that people in the hospital aren't getting the stimulation that they no, absolutely would get in a long-term care home. They're, they don't have access to the same social activities. Uh, they're not coming and going and uh, being able to go outside. Uh, and we are seeing uh, through some some new pilots, in, including one that Schlegel Village has uh, with specialized neighborhoods in partnership with some hospitals to support more difficult admissions where people may have advanced dementia or mental illness. 
they flourish uh, on uh, admission into the long-term care home when they've come from a long stay in a hospital. So it, it really has to be about partnerships, collaboration, conversations, and uh, shared decision-making uh, where we don't take the decisions away from our families. We support them in making the right decisions, but we have to make sure that the pieces are in place that the individuals who would be admitted uh, have all of the facts, that their families have the facts and the information, and that uh, we keep people as close to home as possible. Okay, Donna, please hang on. We've got to take another break. We are bringing in more stakeholders. We'll also take calls. People, please be patient. We'll be right back. Oh, uh, sorry. My bad. (laughs) We took two breaks already. Okay. Then I am going to take a call from Janet in Toronto. Hello, Janet. Hello. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. I'm sorry. When we um, try to move our mom from a nursing home, from, sorry, from a hospital rehab center into a nursing home, we were told that if we resisted, we will be arrested. We had absolutely no choice, and she was sent to a hellhole. And when she arrived there, the director of the of the nursing home greeted us and told us, oh, there's many people here from your country, name of the country. And we never mentioned what country she was from, so they just sent us from one place to a place where they were people from the country we came from, which my mom never wanted to live in that neighborhood. So it was the most cruel thing anyone could have done to a family at such a vulnerable time. When was this? When did this This happen? 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah. That sounds, uh, I I mean, I'm speechless, but uh, 20 years ago, that was a long. uh, Does anybody, thank you, Janet, for your call. Um, just, <laughs> I'm going to bring in Dr. Samir Sinha. That's quite the story. I mean, hopefully that hasn't been happening, though I know people were moved beyond without their will during the pandemic. Hi, Dr. Sinha. What's your reaction to that measure? Yeah, this is a concern. I know that uh, a year ago, I remember the minister calling me and, uh, and other stakeholders saying that they wanted to actually make um, a temporary measure at that time where the province would strip the rights of individuals to choose where they could live. Um, that's always been a fundamental right in our long-term care legislation that you cannot be sent to a long-term care residence um, without you consenting to actually go live in that residence. What's not 100% clear right now from the minister's remarks and and what I've seen is if they are now going to legislate the right of hospitals to temporarily, and temporarily can be code words from days to years, exactly um, to people to be forced to go to places that they have not consented to go to because it helps out the hospital, um, but it doesn't necessarily uh, meet with their particular preferences or 
or their needs. And the question then becomes is if you strip away people's rights, um, you know, in that way, then you're putting people in incredibly vulnerable situations because what is the recourse if people are sent to a home that they never wanted to go to that is not able to meet their needs for a variety of, uh, of reasons, for example, and they're stuck there because it's the government's right, it's the legislation that say, we can send you wherever you are um, because, you know, you can, we can do that until the bed at one of the homes where you might want to go to is available. I'm all for having good conversations. I'm all for making sure that people can understand their options. But we've never stripped away the rights of people to actually be able to choose where they want to go. Right now, in our system, when you're leaving hospital, even to a transitional care unit, a reintegration unit, um, some temporary place, you are still consenting to go to that place. Um, what's not clear now with this, le- this need for a legislative change is if we are now stripping away that final right that has always been a clear check and balance. And that deeply concerns me because, again, I agree with Donna, who was saying before, when people get to the place where they want to go, a place that can better meet their needs than a hospital, absolutely, it can be a really positive step. But right now, um, I'm deeply concerned that when you take away a person's and a family's right to choose where they want to go, and frankly, people often know what's best for them. Uh, I'm really worried about what this could fundamentally mean because this is a huge, huge thing that people have to appreciate what this government do- seems do- to be proposing what to do. Dr. Sinha, I was under the impression that people were moved without their consent during the pandemic, and we heard from some families, but I don't know if it was enshrined in legislation. Uh, it wasn't at the time. It wasn't enshrined. I think, it, as I understand, it was a temporary measure. I think the government, as I understood, officially was saying that they never had to enact that measure. But I personally know that a lot of people were being told, here's where you got to go, and y- y- you don't really have a choice. Um, and that might not have been officially recorded as people being forced to move. But, but no, that was never enshrined in legislation, as I know of. But now I think the government is saying, hmm, we did it temporarily. It didn't seem to cause any bad headlines. So it why did. don't we do it now? It did cause bad headlines. I'd like to bring in Dr. Doris Greenspoon, who is the uh, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association. And Doris, I know you're not happy that uh, Bill 124 was not repealed in this, but uh, I think some people are relieved. And and I actually saw uh, one or two good things in this, and that's, uh, you know, paying the registration and exam fees for foreign trained uh, health professionals to get certified. And yeah, absolutely, Livy, you're right on all of the above. And I also can comment on Dr. Sinha comments. Uh, but let me start with you. You ask me. Um, Bill 124 is the biggest, the biggest and most serious barrier to retention in Ontario. Uh, the nursing shortage, the crumbling of the health system because there are not enough nurses uh, is an international and national phenomenon. The only one that has Bill 124 is Ontario. So it becomes really our most detrimental uh, retention tool. We don't have it. In fact, it's a repellent. Um, now, good news is bringing more people into the system. You have heard me talk before about the 26,000 internationally 
uh, educated nurses, most of them living right here in Canada, most of, well, all of them wanting to work in Ontario. That's why they applied to the College of Nurses. And uh, although the college is moving faster than uh, before, uh, it needs to move even faster. And today they provided the plan to the minister. I would like to see that plan. We want to see within six months to a year the entire backlog uh, done because these nurses are on the sidelines and they need to be on the front lines to bring uh, relief to the, my colleagues that are simply overexhausted and have workloads that are unsustainable for quality uh, care. Let me ask. Let, let me ask a couple of questions because we're fifteen hundred dollars for the registration. That's nice. Let me ask a couple of questions just because we are running out of time here. Now they talked about um, more surgery in private facilities. I'm not clear. Are any of you clear? Is this surgery in private facilities that already exist, or are are these new ones that are going to come on board? Uh, does anybody just know the answer to that? Hello, <laughs> doctor. I'm here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In nursing homes. Uh, sorry, uh, Dr. Sinha, do you know the answer to my question? Yeah, I, I, do, I, do, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think it's about doing more, for example, in existing centres. I think existing centres are already working at capacity, but I think it's certainly opening the door for more kind of private delivery options, but not sure kind of what that consists of or, or how that will actually be overseen. Uh, Doris, does that worry you? Uh, so you will see that in our press release. We don't speak about just for profit. What we are speaking is we will oppose any attempt to use uh, corporations uh, with shareholders and investors for uh, private for-profit corporate clinics for surgeries because they legally, the first, as Samir will know very well, the first obligation of a corporation that is as such by by statute is to the shareholders and investors not to the not to the patients or the clients so it delivers lower care in surgeries and that's well known so whether it is not for profit uh, or or you know not with shareholders like Kensington Eye Clinic uh, that is a specialty clinic doesn't have shareholders doesn't have investors that's very different. So we need to, this is why we, what we are asking in our press release is we want the full details and we, that needs to be shared publicly. And uh, as, as always, the devil is in the details. Uh, we're almost out of time. So I am going to go around the table. Donna Duncan, uh, you want to see the regulations on this business about moving ALC patients. Uh, what is your conclusion about the rest of what we already know? The, the, the thing, and, and this is to, to both Doris and, and uh, Samira's point, these initiatives announced today are going to take time. What are we going to do today? So what are the urgent measures that are more immediate that will help us through the fall? We're very concerned about flu and COVID in a fall season. What are those steps? So six to eight months uh, to to implement uh, some of these initiatives. They're very important initiatives. There's a lot, uh, to your point, Libby, in the detail. But what are we going to do today? Dr. Sinha. 
Yeah, I'm just, uh, I think I'm just concerned. I'm concerned that, you know, when you're in a crisis, for example, there's just a lot of, um, and this government doesn't have, you know, kind of many clear, you know, options that it feels on the table. I feel like there's just a lot of things that are being said, but, you know, as Donna said, the devil, the devil will be in the details. I think we need to really understand what's being done and, and do it in a way that we're not going to strip people's human rights um, and put them at increased risk. And I'm worried that some of the changes that are being proposed for our long-term care system, you know, may do that. And, and that's the last thing that anybody needs. Dr. Doris Greenspoon. So I want to be more hopeful and more, um, unless I'm proven wrong, uh, more uh, have more faith on what all of us are trying to do together. I don't necessarily, and I know Samir and Donna will agree with me, think that it's good for people that already decided to go to a nursing home to stay in a hospital. It's not good for them. Uh, nursing homes provide care that is much more uh, tailored to their needs, uh, much more home-like. Ideally, they should be at home, period, if they can, and we need to increase home care resources. Uh, and I don't think, and I am hopeful, that we will never force a person to go that doesn't want to go to a specific home for whatever reasons they have. In relationship to nursing, I will insist on Bill 124. If not, we will be become the bridge for nurses to come and go somewhere else. Okay. And we are completely out of time. Of course, we'll be talking about this for days and weeks and hopefully not years to come. Thank you so much, Dr. Doris Greenspoon, Dr. Samir Sinha, and Donna Duncan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Libby, and thanks to my colleagues for all the work they do. Bye. And that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. People, I want to hear from you what you think about these changes. And uh, we'll also talk about some that we didn't even get to today. That's all the time we have. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.